0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to do this, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of fun. Um, I love all you guys, even you, Mike. Um, yeah, I'm really happy, <laughs> this <is great. laughs> um, Yeah, so, I'm, I don't know, I feel like my life is uh, a never-ending series of, like, self-imposed fads. Like, let me explain, like last year, <laughs> my wife's going, yep, yep, you nailed it. <laughs> Like last year, I was on a kick for a couple months where I was learning like the ukulele, um, and then after a couple months, I kind of dropped it. Then I had a and then I had a kick where I was like on YouTube every day learning magic tricks. Like <laughs> this, this is my life. <laughs> and then this year's this year's fact so far. I've been just eating up a bunch of like uh, military podcasts on YouTube, just like uh, people who've been Navy Seals and just talk about their experience. I'm just fascinated by it because I've never had to. I've never had to go through warfare or anything like that. Uh, How many veterans do we have with us this morning? Two? Well, thank you very much for your service. I was just listening to the stories that people who've been in combat have to go through. It's just amazing. I can't imagine anything like that, so. So I'm very appreciative of people who've had to go through that, so I don't. And uh, of the military stories, a lot of them are very similar. You know, like the guys from Vietnam and guys from Iraq can be like, yeah, yeah, that's how it was like for me, that's how it was like for me. But also, some of the experiences are very different. Uh, And Two of the ones that really stuck out to me were in the Iraq War in like 2005, 2006, when the US military was trying to take over the city of Ramadi in western Iraq. Uh, It was a terrible city, just an awful place where uh, you know, Islamic radical insurgents ruled the city, and it would terrorize people, and they would do things to women and children that were better left imagined than explained. And when the US military came in, and they, you know, they, they breached the city, they got in there, and they set up shop, and they started taking over the whole city, the people of Armani were thrilled. I was amazed at how happy they were. When they would, uh, when the US military would successfully take out, you know, a bad guy, people would clap and cheer in the streets, They were just so happy. And they eventually freed the city and made it into this wonderful, peaceful place safer than Philadelphia. And uh, then there are other stories that are not like that at all. Uh, One that comes to mind is the invasion of the Bay of Pigs in the early 1960s. Why they named a place the Bay of Pigs is kind of weird. But uh, it's a a bay in Cuba, and uh, at that time it was well, still is ruled by a communist dictator, the Castro regime, and the US intelligence forces, they kind of wanted to change that because having a communist dictatorship 90 miles from Florida is sort of uncomfortable. So what their plan was, was to gather up a bunch of former uh, Cuban, uh, you know, military-aged males, and get them trained, to get them ready to go, and go into start a revolution in Cuba. That was a plan. Sounds like a good idea. They're like, "Would you guys get over there?" Everybody's gonna be like, "Woohoo! Yay! We can overturn the overthrow the Castro. It's gonna be great." Well, 1961 finally came the day where uh, came the day where they're gonna do it. You know, it's 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 the day, and everything was a miserable failure. Oh, it just went terribly. It was it was completely completely very unfortunate. And uh, one of the amazing things about it was that as the people are coming in, they're trying to establish democracy and freedom, the people of Cuba were kind of like, why are, you, why are you doing that? Like, sure, you know, communist dictatorship, it's not that great, we have our problems, but it's, it's Cuba, it's our home. We don't, we don't want your help. We're happy the way it is. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So this dark contrast between examples like Ramadi and examples like the Bay of Pigs, it's just amazing. And some of that contrast we're actually gonna read about in today's scripture, smooth transition. <laughs> so would you open up with me to John 15? That's where we're gonna to be today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty over there underneath the three-leaf clover. were supposed to be four-leaf clovers. Uh, they're right over there by the door. You can grab a Bible. And we're gonna be looking at John 15, verses 18 through the following chapter, verse four. So to turn there, I will start reading. Starting at verse 18, John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for just the freedom we have to come and gather together. Um, Lord, we just thank you for the safety that you've given each and every one of us. I just thank you so much for this word. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficult passage. It is a very difficult passage, but Father, I pray for your blessing on, on my sermon. Lord, not only that it goes well, but that it would have real, tangible effect in uh, the people here, in their lives. I pray that you would, that your Holy Spirit would be working in their hearts, that you would really just bless them richly this morning with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Awesome. So looking at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16, that kind of helps us out. That's uh, a lot of passages you're like, ooh, I wonder what the point here is. I wonder what he's trying to get at. And Jesus really helps us out. Because he tells us exactly why he said the things he said. He's like, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. And then verse 4, but I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That's that's pretty helpful, thank you, Jesus. Uh, The main point there of this text, you can kind of grab a hold on, is Jesus is warning his disciples that the world will reject them, which is kind of shocking. I mean, if you've been following with our sermon series, we've been in the upper room discourse. So it's basically the last meal before Jesus' crucifixion. All his disciples in a few hours are gonna abandon him, they're gonna run away, and he's gonna be left alone to die on the cross in in a very sad sad morning, and so this is his his last his last stand his last speech where he's telling his disciples. So here's a summary of what everything I've been trying to teach you over the last three years. A lot of Jesus' teaching is like metaphors and, and parables and things like that. Like sometimes Jesus is saying, you know, the kingdom of God is kind of like a mustard seed, and the disciples are like like a mustard seed. Right. Um, yeah, Jesus totally like a mustard seed. Yes, yes. Uh, but this section is abundantly clear. There's no metaphors. There's no. There's no mystery. It's abundantly clear what he's saying, and uh, and it's a shocking turn. We just last week's sermon. It was all about Jesus is saying to the disciples, "You abide in me. I abide in you. We love each other. You love one another. It's going to be great. We're going to be intimate. Awesome. And then in verse eighteen. So, if the world hates you, <laughs> like, wow, 180 degree turn. Uh, and before we jump in, probably good to decipher, what is the world, what do we mean by that? We, we use that a lot in, like, that's a you know that's a pretty popular word in Christianese, we say, you know, you don't wanna be worldly or don't focus on the things of the world. We use that word a lot and it can kinda get confusing what we mean by that word. And uh, was well, <clears throat> Kind of makes sense that it would be confusing because just in John's writings alone, he uses the word uh, in Greek, kosmos, in over 14 different meanings. So it can mean a lot of, it can mean, if God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, or it can mean like, well, if the world hates you, you know, or don't be of the world. It it can mean a lot of different things. But in this context, it's very clear, especially from 16 verses one through four, that this is basically talking about everyone outside of the universal church. Everyone who's not a born-again Christian, a follower of God, everyone who's not that is the world. So in our context, that would be Muslims, that would be atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Hindus, just your general irreligious person. That's that's what we mean by the world. They're the ones who don't know the Father and who often persecute the church. So we're gonna be talking about today, what is the world and what what is its relationship to us? What is the world, and, and how does it, how do I interact with it? What is my relationship to the world, you and me? And as we break down that question, we're going to be looking at it in three ways. We're going to be asking, uh, what does it mean for the world to hate God, right? To hate Jesus. And secondly, what does it mean for the world to hate you? And, and then thirdly, go get them, <laughs> right? So. The world hates God, the world hates you, good luck. Is, that's the three things we're going to be looking at. <laughs> so the first thing we're going to look at, the world hates God. Now, you know, I'm an intellectual kind of guy, right? I know, you know, the Bible's written in Greek, I've taught myself a little bit of Greek, so I'm, you know, real smart, right? So I was like, you know, I wonder what the word hate means in Greek. Yeah. I bet there's some kind of mysterious meaning to unlock the key of this passage, so I looked it up and it's this Greek word meseo, right? Which, and I looked it up in the lexicons, and yeah, I have all these cool tools at home, and and you'll never guess what that means. Hate. yeah, it means hate. Oh, wow, yeah, so I'm like, wow, well, that's unhelpful. Um, and the context gives us a little bit of the flavor of what this word kind of means. I mean, in verse 18, right? If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Uh, in verse 20, Servants of your master, they'll persecute me. So there's persecution involved in this hatred. Verse 21, all these things will do to you in town of my name because they do not know me. So this hatred involves some kind of ignorance, which is kind of, kind of interesting. Verses 23 and 25, right? Whoever hates me hates my father also. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So there's a lot of hatred going on here. There's flavors of persecution of, uh, was, there's emotion here, there's ignorance, and all that kind of wrapped up is what Jesus means by the world hating God. And a good way to think about it is the way the Cuban, Cuban communists felt about the American invasion. right? They, they weren't, the Cubans weren't actively coming over here and you know, trying to like attack us. They just wanted nothing to do with us. right? They wanted nothing just, you stay on your side, I'll stay on mine. And that's kind of how we can think about the world's hatred for God. And that's really different than kind of what our culture feels about the way that the, the non-Christian, non-Christian community feels about God. We, we don't think that, right? We think that all religious beliefs are basically the same. Right, that's, that's what our culture would believe. It's, they're all different paths to God. You know, I worship God in my own way, but a Muslim will worship God in his own way. And, you know, an atheist is just trying to to reach God and, you know, or love or whatever he calls God. Whatever you call God is fine. We're all just basically doing the same thing anyway. And a good way to illustrate what this idea is, is an illustration I like to use, uh, the blind man and the elephant. So imagine uh, one day a man is walking by, he's going on a safari hike or whatever in Africa, and he comes across and he sees in the distance, hey, there's an elephant. And around this elephant are five blind men. And they're all trying to figure out what this elephant is all about. And they're grabbing the elephant in different places. One grabs like the trunk. He's like, oh, elephants are kind of like long and flexible. Another grabs the elephant's leg. He's like, no, 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 elephants are like thick and solid and like a tree trunk. Another one grabs the, the elephant's tail. He's like, no, they're long and have like funny furry things on the end like a snake. And so the man standing off in the distance says, oh, I see. Him. You know, they're not wrong, they're just have incomplete. They should all have part of the elephant. So the illustration goes, so are all the world's religions, so are all the world's beliefs. We all just have part of the elephant. You know, we can't really know what's ultimately true. We just have our own little slice of it. I have my Christian slice, and my friends at work have a Buddhist slice or a Hindu slice, right? We should all have our, our different slices of the elephant. Poor elephant. And here's what I want to say. Based on this passage, this, oh, well, I should back up. So this view is called pluralism. That's, that's what we would call the view. It's that there are multiple plural ways of knowing God. Uh, this takes different forms. Uh, tolerance is another word for it. Or you in, the, in a uh, corporate workplace have probably heard the word diversity. That's what the world view is. It's the many paths to God, the many ways of describing an elephant, Right? pluralism. And here's what I want to say. You can't believe Jesus. You can't call yourself a follower of Jesus. You can't believe that Jesus is the Messiah and be a pluralist. Because Jesus wasn't a pluralist. He thought that everyone who was not following him hated God. And he lumped all those people into a category called the world. So you can't believe in Jesus and be a pluralist. And the second thing is, you can't be logically consistent and be a pluralist. Here's what I mean by that. So the story goes, right, that all of the people grabbing the elephant are blind, right? They can't, you know, they're just trying to do the best they got with, but who's the story told from the perspective of? Someone who can see, right? The man is walking by, so he's saying, well, yeah, everybody can't see, but I can see. Uh, To phrase that another way is... Someone who says, well, there is no ultimate truth. You can't know what's ultimately true. Your response ought to be, is that ultimately true? A, a, a claim that there is no ultimate truth is a claim of ultimate truth. So the illustration of the elephant collapses on itself. He's saying that everybody is blind, but in order to know that, you would have to see. Right? So pluralism is not only against what Jesus is teaching, it's against fundamental laws of logic. So that's the philosophical angle of this, of what does it mean for the world to hate God. And this is directly relevant in our lives. How you ask, well, I'll tell you. Think of someone you know that's not a Christian. Get the particular person in your mind. Think of someone you know, you care about, who's not a Christian. Someone who's part of the world. So here's what this passage means for that person and for your relationship with them. Apart from God's activity, apart from his saving grace, apart from his changing their heart, they're not searching for God. They're not in need of evidence to believe in God because like this passage says, Jesus himself appeared to the world and they rejected him. He did all miracles in front of them. He's like, I'm the Messiah. Remember that guy you've read about in the Old Testament? That's me, I'm God. Believe in me, resurrection, right? All that kind of stuff. They saw the evidence and they said, no, I don't want that. They are unable to love God. All that they naturally can do is hate God. These are the words of Jesus. And this teaching became really real for me with the own person I was thinking of. You were all thinking of an individual person, so was I. I had a coworker. Uh, he works another job now, but we worked together for three years at the place I work at right now. I'm like a cook. I work at a retirement home in Jenkintown. It's kind of fun. Uh, this guy was our receiver. His name is Dave. Um, Dave was a Hebrew Israelite. Um, some of you were like, oh gosh, and some of you were like, huh? Hebrew Israelites are basically the guys that you see in inner cities, standing outside the train station in the purple robes, like yelling and swearing at everybody who walks by. And so the fun guys. Uh, basically their beliefs are that they think that African Americans are the real Israelites, the real Jewish people, and that the ones over there now are like fakes, they're like swaps. And so God only loves African Americans, the real Jews, and he doesn't like anybody else. God doesn't like uh, white people or Asians or Hispanics or any of that kind of stuff, they don't like them. And then the way you make yourself right with God is through obedience to the Ten Commandments, right? Following the Sabbath on the (coughs) right day, following all the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, observing <coughs> circumcision, all that kind of stuff. Like that's their idea of how you are right with God. They're non Trinitarian, so they don't believe that Jesus is God. So it's a whole mess, right? It's it's a it's it's a scary it's a scary thing. And obviously that's antithetical to a Christian worldview, right? We believe that we believe in the Trinity, we believe that salvation is not based on your good works of the law, but it's by faith. So we got some big issues. And we would argue about that every day. Like every single day, right? And we were friends, somehow we were friends, or right? he was supposed to hate white people, but uh, we, were, we were good buddies. We would text each other all the time. I really liked Dave. And we could just never get through to each other. You know what I mean? But one day, one day, and this is toward the end of the three years, we were talking, we, we would you know, throw scripture back and forth, and I was showing him a passage out of Romans chapter four it's the part where uh, Paul is arguing that salvation has to be by faith and not by your good works, right? The difference between hell and heaven has to be faith, grace, and not how good you are. Because if it was, then you'd have something to boast in. And right? Paul says that would be ridiculous. Of course we can't boast. And so I was pointing out to David, I'm like, look, look at this passage. He's like, okay, yeah, I see the passage. We're supposed to be working right now. And... Um, And I'm like, see what it says? It says, if salvation was based on how good you were, how well you were keeping the dietary laws and all that kind of stuff, you'd have something to boast about, right? He's like, well, I guess so. I'm like, then Dave, you have something to boast about, right? You and Paul don't agree on how a person is saved. And he kind of like, he's like, yeah, but I wouldn't boast. I'm like, but you could is the point. And he like, for the first time in three years, he got what I was saying. He understood exactly what I was saying, and he looked at me and was kinda like, I see what you're saying, but like, I don't know, I'm just gonna do my own thing, you know? I'm like, wow. Gosh, (laughs) all I have to, if you want me to cry up here, all I have to do is think about that story for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's when I learned the truth of this passage, that the human heart apart from the Holy Spirit changing a person, will never search after God on his own. Right, we don't, we don't want God. We don't want anything to do with him. We are the Cuban communists, not the Ramadi people. So that's the first point. So the, the world naturally hates God because of the fall, because of our fallen nature. Our species is a spoiled species. So the second thing is, not only does the world hate God, but it hates you too. (laughs) Oh man, it's such an uplifting message, right? On when you're all sleep deprived, this is great. All right, so if you look at me, verses 19 through 21 of the text, here's Jesus' words. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me." So what, what does this mean? What is Jesus getting at here? <clears throat> these, these, are, these are tough words, right? <laughs> this is a really difficult passage. So I think when we're thinking about the fact that the world, the non-Christian community, has some kind of hatred Right, whether it's persecution, or apathy, or just rejection, uh, they have some kind of hatred towards people bearing the gospel. So I think there are two errors we can make when we respond to this. The first is, we can retreat either partially or fully. Uh, we can just say, wow, the world, that's not good. I don't want any part of that, they're bad. Right? They're gonna do bad things to me. So let's just, let's just section ourselves off. Let's go someplace go into the woods, Uh, the Anabaptist movement was very prone to this, like you think of Amish people or Mennonites or that kind of thing, they're like, wow, the world is sinful, they're gonna do bad things to us, let's just segregate ourselves from them, we don't want anything to do with them. That's obviously an error, we can't really fulfill the Great Commission, right? We're supposed to make uh, disciples of all the nations and baptize them, right? So that's, that's not really a great idea. What is much more common is a partial retreat of the world, where we still go about our daily lives, we still work in, uh, you know, in normal places. We still have friends who are not Christian, but we just kind of never bring it up. You know, we're like, oh, I don't know. Whenever I bring up religion or whenever someone, it just just causes all this grief and heartache. It's just not worth it. You know, I'm not going to change my mind. You know, I don't know. So I'll just I'll just not do it. And I would admit to you that both of these both of these uh, errors either a partial or full retreat from the world, are because we value our safety, our comfort, or others' opinions more than we actually value those people. If we really believe that those who are outside of Christ, those who are in rebellion against God, are gonna spend an eternity apart from God, right? That their hatred of God will go into eternity, that they will spend forever apart from the eternal source of happiness, if we really believe that, we really believe that, then why would we value our safety, our comfort, or their opinions of us more than that, right? We would want to reach them, wouldn't we? So that's one error of a retreat. And then the other one is to make their hatred a goal. It's It shouldn't be a goal. So rejection isn't necessarily your fault, right? When you're explaining the gospel to someone, if they get angry at you or they get mad at you or they reject you, it's not necessarily your fault, but it might be. It might be your fault uh, if you're doing, if you're trying to explain the gospel to someone because you want some notches in your belt. You can go, you know, you can go to church on Sunday and be like, yes, how many people? I told the gospel to, <laughs> right? You're just blasting people at work or your family members, or you just like to point out that other people are sinful, right? You just like to point out that, oh boy, if you're gay, you're going to hell, or you know, if you're a sinner then you're going to hell, right? No one likes those people. If you enjoy the fact that someone is gonna spend an eternity apart from God, you have kind of missed the point. Or if you like to do it because uh, it just makes you look better, right, because you're part of the in crowd and they're not, you're doing it wrong, you're making their hatred a goal. We should never desire the world to hate us, but we should also never, uh, we, should, we shouldn't desire their hatred to be a goal, but we also shouldn't avoid it at all costs, right? It's more of a, an indirect thing that happens. It shouldn't be your goal, and it shouldn't be something you avoid at all costs. And there are obviously different degrees of this, whether it's apathy or rejection or violence. Like we, we're not always on 10 with the world's hatred of us. And uh, so you might be thinking to yourself, hmm, I don't really feel like I'm experiencing a lot of hatred in my daily life, like I go to work and sometimes I get in conversations with people that are about Jesus, but I feel like I get along with everybody, you know, am I like doing something wrong? If I'm not experiencing on a regular basis, hatred from the world, am I doing something wrong? And the answer is maybe, it depends. You kind of have to look at it yourself. I mean, I don't, uh, with the people that I know that I'm in a relationship with, I I don't experience a lot of hatred from them. sometimes there's the oh there's Ross he's a Christian can't bring up any uh, you know can't bring up any swear words around him or anything like that so they, you know they kind of like put you at the kids' table that sort of thing that's a very low level of that but other than that like, I've never been fired from my faith I've never been flogged in the street or anything like that right we live we live in a context where uh, where we don't really have to worry about those things but say for example Christians in China like if they do any of the stuff that we could normally do, they would know all about this passage, right? The Chinese government would be cracking down on them. You hold a Bible study in your living room without their permission. Well, your family's never gonna see you again, right? So they understand this very well. And we're all in different contexts. So the point is, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you're never experiencing violent persecution for your faith. But it is a bad thing if you're avoiding persecution of any degree because you value your own comfort or others' opinions of you. And then the last thing I would say is don't take it personally uh, because they did the same thing to Jesus. You know, the, in, in fact, this passage says that the world would probably like you if you weren't a Christian. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you chose the, you chose the unlike side. So the first point was the world hates God. Explain that, and then the world's hatred for us and how we're supposed to react to that, not one error, not the other. And then thirdly, Jesus says, you know, go get him, right? Good luck. Got a lot of stuff up here. So here's what he means. Look at me at verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So this is what Jesus calls us to do, to bear witness and to testify. And that means basically two things, Right, there are two sides of that. It's how we live, right? Our, our moral lives, how we love people, uh, the choices we make for ourselves. That's definitely part of witnessing and testifying. And then there's also sharing what Jesus taught and defending what Jesus taught. All three of those things Right, are what we're called to do. All three of those things are bound up in testifying or bearing witness. And the, the obviously doing just one or the other is kind of a disaster. Right? If, you're, if you're just living a very moral life but you're never explaining why you're living a very moral life, it's not gonna be terribly useful. Uh, and then, obviously, the other one, if you're sharing and defending, like a, you know, like a professor, like a scholar, uh, what Jesus taught, and defending it so well, but your life is a wreck, right? Your marriage is a wreck, your, the way you deal with your kids is a wreck, uh, you're just using profanity all the time, that's obviously going to be a disaster. It's, it's like having a football team that only plays offense and defense, right? You need both offense and defense, or else you're not going to do very well. But, but you might ask, but if the world is the way it is, if human beings naturally have only hatred or apathy toward God, then what are we supposed to do? Like, what can I do, right? What can I do to really make a difference? And uh, the answer is really just obedience, right? I can't change anyone's heart. That's the Holy Spirit's job, as the text makes clear. Uh, not only are we gonna bear with this, but so is the Holy Spirit. And this is the only hope that we really have for that person that we were thinking about earlier. Really, the only hope that they have is the Holy Spirit coming into them and changing their heart. And we can do everything perfectly. We can present the gospel perfectly, explain it with clarity, like I did for my friend Dave, and if the Holy Spirit isn't involved, it's just, it's not gonna work. It really isn't gonna work. But, If the Holy Spirit is God, if the Holy Spirit can change any heart, which the Bible says he can, then there's hope for even the hardest hearts. Nobody is a lost cause, not even my friend Dave. So I still pray for him. I still pray for him. I pray for people like him, who you just keep explaining the gospel to and just nothing happens. God can change anyone's heart. And the reason I know that is because of verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So the point of that text being God chose you out of the world and God chose me out of the world. The Holy Spirit came into my life, into my heart, and changed me from the inside out. So if he can change me, he can change every person that you're thinking about. I mean, my, my own life. When I was a teenager, I was probably probably an atheist or an agnostic or something like that. I didn't believe in God. I had rejected the Christian faith that I grew up in. I was, yeah, I was depressed. I was uh, doing terribly in school. I was selfish. Just all of the things that you can imagine. And it's not because I didn't know the gospel. It's not because I had never read the Bible or anything like that. It's just my heart was, was dead, right? I was of the world. But when I was about eighteen or nineteen, God came into my life uh, through through the witness of my now wife, Angela, and uh, changed my heart. I began to I began to to hate my sin. I began to hate how selfish I was. I began to need know my need for Jesus for His saving work on the cross. God changed my heart. It wasn't an apologetic argument. It wasn't a uh, you know, clever sermon illustration. It was really the Holy Spirit. And I think all of us who have been converted know that, right? Know that it was God chasing them down. And it was God changing their heart, right? So we can be terribly grateful to God for that. Because we were all, we were all once those who hated God. And Jesus is really our example on this. So Jesus came into a world that hated him. Right? Because we know that Jesus is the creator of the world. He is the God of the Old Testament. Right? He's the God of Israel. He came into the world that hated him. And not only did he preach to them the gospel, not only did he love them and did he serve them, but he went to the ultimate extent. He gave his life on a cross. Right? He loved the people, the world, all of his life. And in, instead of people turning like he would assume that they would, right? Well, you would assume that they would turn. instead they nailed him to a criminal's cross, right to a Roman crucifixion. They mocked him, they beat him and they rejected him. That's what Jesus did. That's what God's character is like. And we were called to do the same thing, probably not to the same extent, but many of his followers have gone through the same thing. That is our calling. Our God is one who chases down the world, so should we. So should we. And just in closing, I would just like to I would just like to note um, people people referred Jesus referred to the people in this section as the world, but think about who they were, right? I talked about atheists or Muslims or that kind of thing. But these are people who are part of God's covenant community. These are people who attended synagogue or church every week. These are people who knew their Bible. These are people who could uh, recite portions of the Torah to you, these are people who could hold their own in a philosophical debate. These are people who knew a ton about God. And yet, Jesus says that they hated God. That should cause every one of us a a little bit of discomfort that you can come to church every week. There are people who come to church every week, sit in church, know a ton about God, have been professing Christians their entire life, and yet hate God. And yet hate God. So I would ask each and every one of you, do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus' sin-bearing sacrifice? Can you say that you have a relationship with him, that he is the thing that you love, more than anything else do you know jesus or are you still part of the world my invitation to every one of you would to be to uh, to think about that uh, very carefully i would love to talk to any one of you we can grab a coffee uh, i drink lots of coffee so we could we could meet up anytime to talk about that if you're concerned about that but i would really just stress to you that we all will give account one day to God. We will all stand in judgment before him. And there are going to be people there, Matthew 7 says, there are going to be people that have been like, Jesus, didn't I do all these wonderful things? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I do all these wonderful works? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Knowing Jesus is the most important thing.